I feel strongly that a lot of what has really carried our adoption is skills that we all learned in polyamory mm-hmm. around not being threatened by there being other loves in your life, sharing role, right. not feeling undermined by someone else showing up and being significant. And these are themes that come up mm-hmm. in more traditional adoption triads. And welcome to Fuck Yeah, the podcast where we say fuck yeah to birth stories. I'm here with my braided co-host, Sarah. I love your hair today. Oh, yeah, I have my braids and we did a shoot today. It had to be very functional, this hair. Yeah, we got a lot done today. You having any fuck yeahs this week? I do have a fuck yeah. I just saw Janet Jackson live this past weekend, and damn, she has still got it. Really? She can sing her heart out still. She dances. Like, her whole performance is so sexually empowered. It brought me back to my days, I don't know, third grade. We would make up dances to Madonna, Janet Jackson, Mm -hmm. Paula Abdul, and I'm like, gosh... That was such a great time of sexually empowered mm-hmm. female like salt and pepper singers. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like I am so lucky to have had her as one of my like early music icons. My very first concert I ever saw was Janet Jackson. Really? It was actually a weird experience because my father was back in my life for a short period of time and his boss owned his, the restaurant that he was cooking at, uh, that he was the chef of, and they sent us in a limo. Wow. Two, like, nine-year-olds. <laughs> New Wait, Year's Eve. With your parents, though? No. They what? sent us with a chaperone to Madison Square Garden. And what? I saw Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation Tour. Wow. New Year's Eve, 1991. What? New Year's Eve? Yeah. Were you up super late? <laughs> yes. Wow. What an experience. Yeah. But this last show was just as much of an experience. Andrea and I had a blast. It was so good. I was about to say that Rhythm Nation... It might be one of my kinky roots. Oh. All of that black and the... I mean, it was very kinky, I feel like. Yes, yes, yes. She did some odes in her costume to, like, that tour. The last, like, section of the show is Rhythm Nation. It was so great. Did she tell you to call her Miss Jackson if you're nasty? Oh, she did. I think that was the second song. That segue into that song was fantastic. She only had, like, young male dancers. She did stick her tongue down one of their mouths in one of the scenes. I'm going to call it a scene. It was, uh, I was like, oh, damn. So, yeah, it was great. It was a great show. That's something to put on your resume as a dancer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a great show. Totally shifting gears here. Yes. We have a kind of powerhouse guest today. Ryan is joining us, who is an intuitive doula. Mm-hmm. They have a practice, World of Difference, doula.com. And they support pregnant people who are considering placing their babies with adoptive parents. That is their primary focus because they have also gone through the adoption process Both of their kids are adopted and really interesting journey that they've had through their fertility journey, their process of adoption and 
having an open adoption. So was our intended main focus for this episode. I hope. <laughs> but in fact, we had so much to talk about that we really sort of dove into their birthing journey. And it's fascinating. So today we're going to really hone in on that conversation with them. And I'm so excited for the listeners to to learn from Ryan like we did. Yes. Likewise. I learned so much. It's really a world that is very opaque if you don't have personal involvement in it. And I feel like a lot of people think they know what adoption and fostering and, and even abortion and even what pregnancy and having a child means. A lot of people think they know what it means, but then once you go through it, it's a whole other world. So their perspective is invaluable. That having someone who can take you through Mm -hmm. the journey is there's no better way to do it. Yeah. And I just I think having Ryan as your birthing doula and especially if you're having to go through a separation Mm -hmm. with adoption. I mean, I just can't think of a better person in the world to do it. And especially if you're queer as well, as well, just to have that kind of advocacy and intimate knowledge on your side. So I'm very excited for this conversation. It was so good. We broke it into two. This is going to be part one, the birthing stories. Let's bring Ryan on. Hi, Ryan. We're so excited to have you. Welcome to Fuck Yeah. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. I'm so excited to be here today. I'm so excited to dive into this topic. Oh, yeah. We're excited, too. First, we want to warm you up a little bit. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions like, what's your favorite thing to wear right now? My favorite thing to wear right now is a pair of canvas overalls, this camel colored pair of canvas overalls with many pockets, like super loose fit, sustainably made, yada, yada, yada. Really nice, like soft butch energy, but only pair well with like tiny black crop tops for some reason. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) Really specific, like preschool art teacher kind of look. Yes. Ah. Oh my gosh. Crop tops and pockets. I'm sold. Yes. Yes. That's the summer look. Who was your first celebrity crush? My first celebrity crush was the keeper of the moonstone from Princess Guinevere and the Jewel Riders. Princess Guinevere had the sunstone, obviously. (laughs) Uh, Her buddy Tamara had the heartstone. And then there was another rider who had the moonstone and she rode on this like deep purple horse. What? It was, you know, these, these three femme friends who would go from wearing their like princess attire to this like tight fitting, fierce, like super femme bedazzled body armor when they transformed into the Jewel Riders to defend the kingdom from evil or whatever they were doing. Fallon, who had the moonstone, super hot. Oh, I'm so sad I missed this cartoon. This was not on my radar. Oh, it's on YouTube. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I need to catch up. This seems like it was a good companion to She-Ra, which was my jam. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Absolutely. What was it about Fallon? The aesthetic of the Moonstone was kind of moody. Lots of like soft mint green and dark purple. They each had like a different animal and hers was this like brooding unicorn or Pegasus, (laughs) some type of like big horse. (laughs) And she was she was the toughest. 
I love that. Oh, yeah. What is your first mode of masturbation? Oh, my gosh. My very first mode of masturbation was face down, grinding, like in my bed, on my belly. And what was so interesting about it was that I had no idea what masturbation was or what I was doing. But I was raised Catholic. I went to Sunday school. We were in a very like fire and brimstone church. And I knew that what I was doing was wrong. Huh. Wow. And I would Uh. try so hard to abstain and I would count days. Oh, how many days I could go without doing it. And then I would do it. How old were you? nine maybe you know and I would just become riddled with guilt and anxiety because I knew it was bad even though I had no idea what it was I had never orgasms I had an idea of the mechanics of what sex was but I had no idea that pleasure or desire was a part of it so there was no thought in my mind that these two things were connected in any way so you didn't know at all why it was bad you weren't connecting it to sex no i knew i knew that it felt good and i also knew that like genitals were shameful and right right that was <sighs> and also i i was aware of my transness from a very young age and had a, mm. a complicated relationship with my body so there was some extra stuff kind of going on there but mostly it was it was the hellfire i knew that the hellfire was waiting for me but i couldn't stop it was great wow i love it that's pleasure amazing. wins Grinding was also my first mode of masturbation. Everyone has heard about this already, but it was my friend who taught me and we use doll heads Mm -hmm. to grind against. It was pretty good. I was also about, I think, nine or something. Yeah, but you didn't think you're going to hell, right? I didn't. Oh, and we would tell each other scary stories while we did it. Oh, God. (laughs) Very titillating. I was like, well, she does it. It must be fine. That is exhilarating. Yeah, yeah. I realize that I, as I say this right now, Ruby is just about to be at that age. And I'm just so curious. I'm like, what is happening? I don't know. Oh, that's actually a good segue. Ryan, tell us about your family, because I think that you have such a unique story and such an interesting adoption journey that you've gone through now twice. Mm -hmm. Tell our listeners about it. So first, I'll give you just the basic rundown of the constellation. But it's always so important to me to contextualize how it happened, because it's it is the groundwork for all of the things I think about adoption now. So I have two children. I have birthed two children, one of whom is about to turn 10. Wow. I know. I know. It's a big marker. Yeah. Huge, huge. Yeah. Yeah. Totally true stamp. But so I, my firstborn is about to turn 10. My younger child just turned four. They have two parents who are married, who are queer polyamorous people who are in my community who have become very dear friends of mine. Our adoption is super open. I see my kids. I saw them last weekend. Um, I see my kids really regularly. They know who I am. They understand as much as they can at their ages, you know, the mechanics of how it all, um, how it all sort of came to be. And gosh, I'm just so unbelievably lucky to have such a high functioning open adoption with this level of like transparency and contact where my kids also get to see my sister and her children and their extended family and their queer chosen family and they're just surrounded by so many people. Can I ask real quick how did you connect with them? 
Oh my gosh. I, I connected with them through a mutual friend. Um, I had registered with an adoption agency and I had looked at profile after profile and gone on these like really high stakes speed dates with many different prospective parents before I met them. And yeah, I talked to a friend about, you know, what I was going through and the difficult time I was having finding like the right match. And they told me that, that some people in our community who were attendees at an event that we all used to go to had also just started looking to adopt and then maybe I should meet them. So mm. I had dinner with them and I knew right away that it was, it was the right fit. That's great. Yeah. What a way to make friends. I, oh my God. I know. Oh, right. Yeah. And it's, it's such an interesting thing because over the course of this whole experience, I have learned a lot about adoption and the industry of it. And I've learned a lot from listening to adopted people. And I have very different feelings about the industry of it all now. And it makes me all that much more grateful for how functional our relationship is and how much mm-hmm. empathy and awareness um, my kids' parents have. So if I can give you the the abridged version of what happened, please. I started uh, taking testosterone when I was 18 years old. <laughs> and at that time, there were far fewer prescribers than there are now. Um, it was really difficult to get hormones and there wasn't a ton of widely available information. How long ago? That was in 2009. Okay. In trans time, that's a very long time ago. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so at the time when I signed my informed consent to start taking tea, I was told that I would likely be um, infertile forever, that I would I would lose my fertility as a consequence of taking hormones, which bummed me out because I, I had always been interested in parenting, but, you know, was a, a sacrifice I was willing to make. When I had been on testosterone for three years, uh, when I was about 21, I got pregnant. Mm. Much to my surprise, I hadn't uh, I hadn't had a cycle that I was aware of, but obviously it happened. And um, I found that I was pregnant. I was in college. I was struggling financially. I was disconnected from my family at that time around my transition, and I really didn't know what I was going to do. Having that notion in my mind that I wouldn't be able to have children and finding out that I was pregnant, I thought, well, gosh, what if this is my only chance to have a baby? However, I am absolutely in no position to parent. And so there were sort of these two separate questions of, do I want to go through with this pregnancy? What do I do about parenting? Do you continue taking testosterone or did you have to stop? I stopped taking testosterone as soon as I found out that I was pregnant. Again, not a lot was really known then about what potential risks, if any, might exist because of the testosterone exposure that my baby had already had. I was only about eight weeks along when I found out that I was pregnant. So I decided to pursue adoption. I, at the time I had this idea of adoption as this like mutually beneficial, benevolent thing where there are people who want to be parents and people who can't be parents and their needs just mesh and that's kind of it. Right. So I went through with it. I matched with my kids' parents when I was about 12 weeks along, which is incredibly early to make an adoption match. Um, I know now. And had a a really rough go in the beginning, but ultimately a really successful relationship with them. And when my first child was four or five years old, all of a sudden the desire for a sibling was begging. From your child or from you? 
my from my child. My child was yeah. going to school with kids who had siblings, was seeing, you know, other kids who had little little babies around them, was super jealous, wanted that. And one day during a visit, their parents sat me down and were like, so we are thinking of having another baby. And I was like, really interesting. How are you going to do that? Yeah. They're like, well, they told me that they were considering adopting again. And we just kind of left it at that and let everybody kind of sit with that information. And I just had so many different thoughts and feelings about it. I didn't know how grueling adoption is. The first year after my baby was born was almost unbearable. The emotional impact, the hormonal impact, the the way it affects your recovery to not be with your baby is intense. Mm -hmm. And to then see the baby that you've been separated from over and over and over again and say goodbye Mm -hmm. to that baby over and over and over again, it is real rough. All of our first visits ended with everyone in tears, big, ugly cries. And I thought about how much empathy and communication it took for us to get through that together. And I thought about whether I could bear to watch them go through that with someone else. I feel strongly that a lot of what has really carried our adoption is skills that we all learned in polyamory around Mm, not being threatened by there being other loves in your life, sharing role, not feeling undermined by someone else showing up and being significant. And these are themes that come up Mm -hmm. in more traditional adoption triads a lot and I think are a big part of the reason that most open adoptions close within the first five years. So, you know, I, I wondered, well, if, if they adopt from someone else who's not Polly, or maybe is, and maybe it just goes differently. Maybe that person doesn't want to be friends with me. Maybe they don't want to hang out as a group. Maybe now we're splitting time in a more compartmentalized way. What will their extended family's feelings be like? Will I be able to maintain the feelings of love that I have for my children's parents if I watch them participate in the equation of someone else's suffering the way that I know that adoption is suffering? And I was worried about all of that. Additionally, (laughs) as a birth parent in an open adoption, you have no legal rights. My ability to see and maintain a relationship with my kids relies 100% on my relationship with my kids' parents. Mm -hmm. I trust them. I love them. And I have faith in that relationship. And also, there was a part of me that thought that it would be beneficial to that relationship to solidify my place in their life, to Mm -hmm. build on the role that I occupied by being the genetic parent of both of their children. So I asked them if they were interested in having a genetic sibling and perhaps going through with another adoption intentionally this time because surrogacy was illegal in New York at the time. Really? Yes. Surrogacy became legal in New York in February of 2021. Notably also, it is only gestational surrogacy that is legal now in New York, which means that the surrogate cannot be, you can't use the surrogate's egg. They can't be genetically related to the child, which I am. So there was going to be no world in New York where we could go through a surrogacy. So I got pregnant again and we did another adoption, although we didn't use an agency the second time around. Things were a little bit more lax and comfortable. And honestly, the the experience was really different going into it, knowing 
what I was going to be dealing with emotionally, knowing that I was conceiving with this intention, never for a moment really having even an opportunity to feel like this is my baby the way that I did with my first child when I was in those early weeks of knowing that I was pregnant and not knowing what I was going to do. Right. And knowing what this kind of relationship could look like with the parents. I'm curious who the donor was for the second one. Right. So that, you know, that's a, (laughs) it's a, it's a really great point that, um, comes up in our conversation about the ethics of surrogacy overall. Mm. So the donor for the second child was anonymous. We actually went through many, many rounds of trying to conceive for the second baby using, you know, frozen sperm from a bank, which is just not the same. It is not, it's not as high quality. (laughs) Well, you don't get nearly as much of it. It doesn't last long, you know, there's a, it's a whole thing. And it took, God, it took a year, I think, to get pregnant, which was terrifying to me because I, I realized that I had this whole idea of my value in our relationship being my fertility and springing to the table as the ability Mm. to provide this child. And when I struggled to do it, I crumbled emotionally, but it did, it did happen. And much like I had to learn about the ins and outs and the politics and the ethics of adoption, I also had to go through that process with surrogacy. And now I am aware of the overlying interests that exist between adoptees and donor-conceived children in the question of having access to information about their biological parents and their heritage and what should be the obvious entitlement that they have to that morally, but legally, that information is often not available to them. And hmm. it's it's a huge issue that there's a lot of um, adoptee-led advocacy around reforming, but it's also really complicated because it's a state-by-state issue. And it's, it's something that I, that I think about a lot, that I know that a day will come when I have to grapple with answering to my children about their other genetic contributors. Even, you know, the, <laughs> the father of my first child knew that I was pregnant and knew that I was considering adoption. Neither of us were interested in co-parenting together. We weren't in that kind of relationship. And he told me in the last conversation that we ever had, that I could either have an abortion or I could make sure that he never saw or heard from me ever again because he wasn't sure that he could handle adoption and he couldn't promise that he wouldn't do something stupid and ruin a good plan that I had made. Mm. So I took those words to heart. I never contacted him again. Wow. You know, unfortunately, that means that there is sort of this hole in my kid's story that I know a day will come when I have to answer to filling it. Right. I'm relieved that, you know, for now, my kids are surrounded by love and parents and family members, and they have so much access to me and my history that I think, you know, the, the, the kids seem like they're all right. They're, they're well adjusted. They're happy. Good. But yeah, it's even, even in our like fairy tale scenario that exists now, there are really complicated questions that, that will have to be answered. Yeah, it seems really complex. I'm curious what your pregnancy experience was like. Everyone's so different. Sarah and I have both been pregnant, had really different experiences. Did your body take well to it or was it a big burden or 
How did it go? My, <laughs> so funny. My, my pregnancy experiences were great. Um, my, my first pregnancy and, you know, I was, I was 21. I had a lot of energy to spare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was difficult in that I was living in poverty and stealing my groceries and carrying them alone to my fifth floor walk up, super pregnant in the summer in Flatbush. It was lonely and it was difficult Mm -hmm. logistically, but my body handled pregnancy really well and I enjoyed it. I had some morning sickness in the beginning. It resolved. I had, you know, some aches in my back. My feet got tired, but ultimately it was pretty okay. And then my first baby came like a tornado. Really? <laughs> my water broke around noon. I like stepped out of bed and my water broke all over the floor, like a movie. Wow. I know. <laughs> I, I called my midwife and she was like, go to the hospital, have them check you out. They're going to send you home. It's going to be a long day. Like pack your bag later. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. So I got on the train. <laughs> Wow. About 40 minutes later, while still on the train in the middle of July, it's like 90 degrees. I go from having like a contraction every 10 to 20 minutes to having minute long contractions every two minutes. Oh my God. If you have this baby on the train, I'm going to freak out. (laughs) Almost. It's such a movie. I know. My partner at the time was with me and had the good sense to say, let's get off this train. So we got off the train and we, we got in a cab and I fought the urge to push in the cab all the way uptown to what used to be St. Luke's Roosevelt. By the time we walked into the hospital, I was ready to go. I mean, it had been almost two hours. I spent another hour in triage while my partner and the nurses and the hospital social worker argued about whether my baby's adoptive parents could come up about 20 minutes after they finally got me into a room. Boom. My baby was born. I was, Oh my God, my mind completely unprepared, uneducated about what birth was going to be like, terrified by the pain, panicking, begging for drugs, way too late, unfamiliar doctors, but it just happened so fast that boom, it was done. And my baby was there. Oh my God. That part was amazing. So like three hours labor. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, can you, I mean, that must have been really painful that dilating that fast. Oh yeah. It was, yeah. Super painful. Um, and I tore big time. (laughs) You know what? That those fish hook stitches were almost as bad. Oh my gosh. Oh gosh. I know. I, if we go back and forth on this too much, it's going to get real cringy, but my birth was also really fast. And yeah, once the stitches happened, I was like, good God. And my placenta was also stuck in my body, which, um, would like fishing that out was like a whole thing that I'm like, I don't know what was worse. <laughs> oh my God. We need to do a whole birth episode just sharing birth yes, stories. Yes, yes. And you know what what is what is so important to me to remember in when I remember that young person who was just so all over the place and so afraid is all of the things that really led to me being in that situation, which started with being out as a child, you know, I, I was out in high school and my guidance counselor at the time told me, um, I'm not going to put you in health class. I'm going to put you in independent study because the teacher is so homophobic. It would be like putting a gun to your head. As a result, I did independent study and I never had one single day of health anatomy or sex education. I got out of high school and went to pursue hormone therapy and had a bunch of medical providers who also were not 
prepared to educate me, to inform me who didn't have good information themselves. And from that position, you know, there I am on hormones thinking I have no fertility and suddenly I'm pregnant and I'm dealing with being trans in the world. I'm dealing with being trans and pregnant. I'm struggling to maintain employment. I don't know what's going on with my body. Other people don't know what's going on with my body. They can't help me. My OBGYN is hostile. Um, They know I'm considering adoption. They're hostile. I get no breastfeeding education. There's an assumption that I'm not going to do it. And my adoption agency did not communicate with the hospital ahead of time. So the hospital didn't know that I already had a plan and already had parents. And they sent a social worker to interrogate me about why I was choosing adoption. They drug tested me without my knowledge. It was a mess. It was a mess. And it didn't have to be that way. And I'm really fortunate that when I chose to have my second baby, I sought out a dyke midwife. Nice. I told her right up front what was what and who I was and what we were doing. And she went to bed for me and made sure that every single nurse who worked in L&D at the hospital we would be at knew who I was and knew what was happening and was educated and wouldn't even call me mama. Yeah. You know, she got us in her room. My kids' parents were able to be there for the birth along with my partner. She checked in on me throughout my labor. And guess what? I didn't tear. That was a difficult labor because I had um, high amniotic fluid at the end of that pregnancy and so they scheduled me for an induction because they thought that there might be a stenosis in my baby's belly. There wasn't. My baby was fine. But I had an induction and it took 16 hours and Mm -hmm. it was difficult, but I had so much support Mm -hmm. that I was able to have a really different outcome. And what was really interesting about my second birth is that even though my baby was fine because they were concerned, they chose to keep the baby in the NICU for a week. And so what happened was instead of having my baby and immediately having to hand that baby over to other people and go home alone, Mm -hmm. the baby stayed at the hospital and all of us went home and I came back to the hospital six times a day to feed the baby over the course of the week and sort of eased into in and out, in and out, saying hello, Mm -hmm. saying goodbye, feeding, having alone time. And I didn't have to be there when my baby's parents picked up the baby to go home. I was able to make other plans, which I've learned is Mm -hmm. really important thing to do after something emotionally charged, like visiting the kids you don't have custody of. And it went a lot better. It was still excruciating. It was still difficult. I still really struggled during those early visits, but comparatively, oh my God, just (laughs) light years better than the first time around. Well, it's such a wonderful way to honor our younger selves when we're able to learn from all of those mistakes and just everything that went wrong in the first time you're able to really reform it with support a big part of my my pandemic project was getting certified as a doula and a big part of the reason that i wanted to do that was to focus on providing support specifically to people in this situation who are anticipating child separation who may or may not know what they're in for and who probably don't have other people planning around what I call separation day for them, which is yeah. a year or two after birth when everybody goes home their separate ways. You know, learning about the politics of it all and the industry of it all and really understanding the way that marginalization within systems impacted my experience, alleviated a lot of my like own guilt and feelings of failure and transformed those into anger and motivation to do something about how fucked up this all is. Yeah. I mean, I know we want to get into the weeds about adoption. 
You know, this might just have to be a two-parter because I want to stick here for a minute with the pregnancy piece. And what you experienced is a level of needing to be resourced and needing support that is so much more amplified than, you know, what a lot of people's birthing experiences are. But that is the one thing, like, I don't think you can give advice around birthing. I don't think you can give Mm -hmm. advice around parenting, but that would be the only piece of advice that I would have of like, you have to be resourced going in to these situations because best laid plans, like I think I had an idyllic situation. Like I had my best friend and my partner. We like went through a whole bunch of birthing yoga classes together. I had a birth plan. Once we got in there, my doctor did not pay attention to my birth plan at all. He went completely rogue. And even though you have like I had two advocates there like no one can kind of work against the medical industrial Mm -hmm. complex in that moment there were like things coming out of the sky like he pushed he pushed the nurses out of the way you know all of a sudden it's just like you kind of don't have any autonomy over what's happening yeah and I, I just think it is so important to have people who understand the system and can go to bat for you. Yeah. And also to bring birth back out of the system as much as possible. Birth is not innately an emergency. It does not innately need to happen in a hospital. And what we need to remember about obstetrics and gynecology is that for male doctors, these practices were born in in slavery and experimentation Mm. on enslaved people. Mm. The, The foundation of the thing is a complete lack of autonomy and agency for the people to whom this is happening. And that's not, that's not the way historically so many other people and so many other times have been able to have supportive birthing community with people who have passed down their methods and their knowledge in a way that is not institutionalized um and there are a lot of people working really hard to get back to that as much as possible not only to create better outcomes right because all of this intervening that happens is often premature, unnecessary, excessive for the convenience and control of the doctor rather than for the promotion of the labor. And those things lead to to worse outcomes. And it's just disrespectful to one of the most amazing processes that humans can go through. Yes. And it, it also creates a lot of vulnerability to the way that we criminalize different people and different Mm -hmm. parents. All of that happened to me and I was white and I was able to pull allies in at different moments or have conversations with different people who listened to me in a different way than they would have if I was a person of color. And we know that pregnant people of color are subjected to to drug testing and pregnancy way more often and having their children ripped away for what? For things that we actually don't know enough about when it comes to drug use and pregnancy specifically. I'm just realizing that when you said that they drug tested you is because they wanted to see if you were using so they could take the baby if needed? Right, so that the baby would go. I was working with a private adoption agency, um, but had I tested positive, the the OBGYN would have then had the opportunity to report me to the state. And then the state would have been in charge of what happened to my baby rather than this adoption agency, which was presumably listening to me and where I wanted the placement to be. They don't need your consent for it or they they just didn't, they didn't get have it. it. They just did it. Wow. Ugh. Just taking a moment to take that all in and just thinking about, you know, 
you are 21, probably presenting real differently than a lot of the folks that are coming in there getting ready to have their baby, right? And so there's all these assumptions made, which strip your rights away in that moment, in a moment where you're already so fragile and vulnerable and cannot advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know enough to advocate for myself. And that there are a lot of ways that comes up in, in the adoption process as well. Robin, what did you think of that conversation, <sighs> that interview? I mean, the whole interview was amazing and I learned so much. As far as the birthing stuff goes, I was just floored by Ryan's birthing story. To go through that entire process in three hours, oh, I, I just can't imagine. And then just how every story is so different. Yeah. I mean, my birthing story it was a like about a 35-hour start to finish. And I... <laughs> It was just such a shit show. It was such a nightmare. And then with Mars, we did a planned C-section. So the first one was a 35-hour hellhole ending in an emergency C-section. I, I felt very in tune with what they were talking about as far as how the second one can go so differently. You learn so much from the first one. And so my first one, the whole idea is like... I really wanted to do the all natural thing. My mom had myself and my brother, two giant babies. My brother was almost 12 pounds. She had us at home, no midwife, no doula, no doctor, just my dad and her father, who couldn't have been helpful. I know, your mom's birthing story. It's unbelievable. But also the pressure that that, I think that like there's this weird way that information gets passed down yes. through generations. Like I knew nothing about how anyone in my family birthed. But when I think of your birthing experience, it's like you go in with this expectation, yeah. like, oh, my mom was Wonder Woman. Yeah had me without anybody around and these huge babies so it's going to be fine and then that influences the decisions that you make a hundred percent and so I was like I'm going to do this my mother had always said like oh women can actually birth very large babies our bodies are made to do that it's mm. the medical industry that tells you that you need drugs but you don't really need drugs and like all of this stuff and it harms the baby and so all this stuff of like not only do I not want to do the drugs because of my mom telling me that I don't need it, but also because it's going to harm my baby. So I was so focused on this natural, natural birth. But there's this other thing where like my mother's side of the family is quite large people. They're all six foot and above. And my dad's side of the family is like smaller. My dad's five, six. So I'm a smaller person. And I think I still had these giant babies. And I just was not that baby was not coming through my hip bones yeah, were the problem. Yeah. He was pushing so hard on my pubic bone and how traumatic that was for him and then how traumatic it was for me. And I was like so, so exhausted. And I had to go through so much pain before I finally gave in and did the epidural. And at that point, it was already about 30 hours into it. And I was completely exhausted and the pain was so intense because he wasn't coming out. Yeah. But I was pushing, my body was pushing him into my pubic bone. So eventually emergency C-section, he comes out, he's blue, he's not crying. They immediately rush him off and I fell asleep. I passed out. 
I was like, Max is with him. I was like, go with the baby. And I fell asleep for a while, a long time. And then began NICU, where he had to be on antibiotics because he had aspirated merconium for 10 days. And he was this huge baby. He was almost 10 pounds. Mm. So I take him this huge baby covered in wires out of the incubator. And I would try to breastfeed him every three hours. And then I would go back and have to pump. And then I would try to sleep for about an hour. Yeah. Or I would eat. And then I would do it again. And I did that for 10 days. And I thought I was going insane. Yeah. Like it was maddening. It felt never ending. It felt like I was in a horrible purgatory. Because in addition to that, I had just gone through a major surgery after the most painful, right. traumatizing thing I'd ever been through. And now you have to take care of this baby. Yeah. <sighs> it's fucked up. That's the moment that is pretty wild when you realize, I mean, I had that moment leaving the hospital where I was like, they should not be sending me home with this baby. Right. Like, I don't know what to do. Yep. I was thinking when Ryan was talking about the NICU experience, knowing what you had gone through, I was like, wow, how different the context yeah. and that being something that was positive for them to be able to have a little bit of a transition. Yeah with their baby in the way that they didn't have the first time. Right. When they were telling their story of their first birth, I was like, oh my goodness, what happened with the second birth? Because, right. you know, usually they come faster the second time, but I guess yeah. because of the induction, you know, it was a totally different experience. But maybe I hadn't realized or thought about it in a while until they said, you know, like all their tearing because of how fast things went. I had kind of forgotten that that was an element for me. Uh -huh. Mine was not three hours hours, but it was about eight hours. But I only pushed for seven minutes. Wow. So Ruby came through the birth canal Ask. in less than 10 minutes. Wow. And the thing I didn't give the shout out to is the nurses that we had. Like, granted, I was yeah. really disappointed with how my doctor performed in my birth. Mm -hmm. But the nurses, it was hysterical because I had Kristen. Right. And my partner and the nurses just kept coming in and like oh the lesbians are fine yeah like they just completely left us alone yeah which was kind of great but every time are you sure you don't want drugs are you sure are yep. you sure well how much worse is it gonna get and the nurse says to me she's like okay i think we're at the point where you like you have to have drugs now or you're not going to be able to have mm -hmm. them and i'm like okay i can tolerate this how much worse does it get and she said, it's going to burn. Burn. And I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. I can handle it. That is the understatement right? of the century. Yep. My God. Mm -mm. Once Ruby really started coming, I was panicking yep. because it was so intense and you know i had my doctor yelling at me that i was doing it wrong and also i was on my back which i didn't want i had always said i want the bar and i want to be on my knees and i want to have gravity help yeah. he pushed me on my back what? which was actually helpful he said you have to tuck your chin and you do not scream like, do <laughs> not make a noise yeah you put all of that energy wow. into the push and ruby came out so fast wow. and I was unprepared oh. and then there were a whole bunch of things that happened after that right. which I won't get into the details of but it was 
It's not at all what I expected it to be because then there was some medical intervention after the fact because of just like kind of how quickly it all went. Yeah. That was like really got me out of my body Mm. and I felt I was frozen. Like I had Ruby in my arms and was like, I don't know what to do because there are like hands like in my womb right right now. And then there was stitching and no one was telling me what was happening. And it was just like, yeah, I don't regret giving birth in a hospital, but... I do think that, you know, the work that Ryan is doing now, like I can't shout out doulas enough. Yeah. It's like the blind leading the blind when you just have random people in there. Like it would have been nice to have a doula. Yeah. And for you too to be like, hey, this is what's happening right now. I had a doula the first time, but it just was, I think, out of control. Yeah. I think my situation was unique in not completely i'm sure it's happened before i feel like had it not been modern science i would have died in childbirth oh and that luca would have died he would have never come out if he didn't get cut out yeah and that that probably it probably would have gone on for like another couple like maybe a couple days oh i don't know i'm really grateful for the care that i got but there was issues with it and it's really that nicu experience that just this giant cherry on top of this horrible experience. And it's so conflicting because then you have your child. Yeah. And you're wrecked. And you're just wrecked. Yeah. I don't think I ever recovered from it. Like, I think I'm still really just starting to process it. And that was almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Oh, thank God that's over. <laughs> <laughs> that day was fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my <sighs> gosh. No one should ever have to do that. No one should ever have to be pregnant or have to give birth. The idea of just go through with the pregnancy, now that I've gone through it, I am more pro-choice than I've ever been. I'm more pro-abortion because it is the most serious decision. I mean, I have existential crises around my children even now that I made the decision to summon more beings into this world. And so when I'm feeling depressed or sad about the world... It goes directly into that, that I have these precious humans that I decided to bring into this. And now they have to live it out. Yeah. Even that just kind of fucks with me. And to make that choice for other people. Well, yeah. I mean, to force people to go through that kind of medical trauma. Yeah. But then to force people to parent who are, for whatever reasons, choosing to not do that Mm -hmm. or would choose to not do that. I completely agree with you that the process of birthing, having a kid has made me more pro-choice. And I took Ruby to a protest. Was it now last summer? The Supreme Court ruling. And people were driving by who appeared to me to be moms. Mm -hmm. I had someone scream out the window, baby killers don't deserve to have kids. Wow. And Ruby was shocked, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, of course. 
And I just felt like, wow, I, it, how amazing is it that we've gone through a similar experience and have come out on the complete opposite side of this issue? Yeah. Where I'm like, absolutely not. Under no circumstances should someone do this if they don't choose to do this. Absolutely not. This is the hardest thing I have done ever. By far. Nothing comes close. You cannot be forced to do it. Yeah. It's cruel. It's absolutely an oppressive tool. Yes. A big part of it, I think, is wanting to control women and also completely not taking their experiences into consideration. And I would suspect, and I don't know the person who yelled this at you, but I would suspect that there's a level of the children are more important than me going on in that person. Not that we're all equal, you know, even that for me, because uh, I often feel like, yeah, where are the kids in these conversations? Like mm-hmm. we do need to be prioritizing the experience of humans who are going to come into this world. Yeah. And part of my pro-choice belief is that it is better for the humans that we bring into yes. the world if they are raised in a context, in a situation where someone is prepared for raising that child yeah and is choosing it and is like okay let's go down this path i'm prepared for this journey and i want to do it yeah so you know same kind of belief different side of the issue yeah yeah another layer of it is just the impact on the earth yeah (laughs) seriously like one human being is a huge impact it is not a green thing to do and i know that the people that are typically pro-life are not typically concerned about this as well but i just feel like it is a huge decision even for the planet like we're getting to a breaking point wow okay well we are gonna have ryan back again next week can't wait. There is still so much more conversation to have with them, more specifically about adoption and the adoption industry and all of those things. So please find us on TikTok or Instagram at Fuck yeah Pod. You can email us at fyapod at gmail.com. We really hope to hear from you. And until next time, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. Fuck Yeah Podcast is hosted and produced by Sarah Tom Chesson, hashtag my mom, and Robin Jennings. Theme music is by she, her, sir. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would mean a lot if you would rate, review, subscribe, or share with a friend. You can get in touch by emailing us at fyapod at gmail.com or find us online at fuckyapod.com. Thanks for tuning in.